Bonjour Dave, comment allez-vous? Hola, que tal? Uh, très bien. <laughs> nice, awesome. So you're you're yes, back from we... uh, getting all uh, Quebec'd up. Oui. Yeah? Nice. Uh, yes, I got a chance to... I was reminded of just how poorly my high school French was serving me. Um, I got to address a room full of francophone uh, Quebecois IT mm -hmm. folks. Um, in French? Not in French. Mm. Uh, and uh, in English, they were very, very gracious and allowed me to uh, address them in English. Um, yeah, seven years of high school French completely lost on me. Uh, um, and even with, you know, like government and computer acronyms to help me out, it still wouldn't, it still didn't do me any good. Um, had to do it in English. Uh, but the talk went well. It was very well received. Um, even got some coverage in the local paper. So oh, good. wow. Uh, yeah. Um, so it was delightful. Uh, and Quebec City is a beautiful city. I got to walk around the old town a little bit. And uh, it was neat. It actually reminded me of the old town in Stockholm. Uh Uh, so I guess there's something about being north of a certain latitude uh, and being a coastal town uh, where they all are pretty much going to look the same. At least I, maybe I hope that's true. Yeah, that's a, I've heard, uh, that's on my list of places to visit. Um, and, and people have told me that it's like the closest you can get to Europe without actually going to Europe. I think that's true. I think that's very true. Yeah. yeah. Um, although disappointingly, the police cars still use the North American police car sound and not the... Uh, not the sweet European one. Uh, you know, it's like yeah. the wailing instead of the inner, inner, inner. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. Uh, and then I uh, got back and uh, spent the weekend, did a little bit of, uh, did a little bit of house cleaning, did a little bit of uh, PC laptop house cleaning, um, which we can talk about later. Uh, I, made okay. some, I made some wonderful discoveries. Yeah. Good. Uh, Looking forward to that. Anyway, uh, how about you? Oh, I was listening to uh, hardcore history on the uh, silver line in, yeah. uh, DC. Yeah. Right on. That's great. Yeah. So I like, I'm, I'm like pulling these down and I'm like, holy moly, these are like four hour long episodes, but it's like you burn through them so quickly. They're so good. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking that it's like, does this guy do like one every week? And it's like, it's, it's does he just sort of live stream something and call it an episode. But, uh, but I guess he comes out with them once a quarter or so. So it's not like that overwhelming or, or of too much content at one time. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and I noticed that also that he refers to other people working on hardcore history, which makes it sound like he actually has a staff, uh, which I can't imagine. Um, I mean, are there that many history buffs out there that he can actually support like a staff of what sounded like three or four people uh, that help him produce the the uh, episodes? Yep. Yeah. But anyhow, Silver Line is nice. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was nice to be able to take that and not have to rent a car, which I always hate doing. Yeah, I'm excited about that. So it was. So were there any tricks? Uh, any alligators? Did you have to beat the boss at the end? What was, the, what was that like? <laughs> well, no. Um, but to get to the Tyson's office, it's still a little bit of a hike. So it's a. Um, you got to go up this. It's a pretty big hill and all that. So I wouldn't recommend doing that if um, if it's like a hot summer day um, and you know you're wearing a suit or something, you'll be all like sweaty. But if it's like a spring or fall, it would be a, a nice, nice walk. Cool. Excellent. Uh, yes. Oh, sorry. We should explain the silver line to folks who are not necessarily familiar with the silver line. This is the uh, new Metro line that just opened up between downtown Washington and Tyson's corner. Uh, the, the 
the edge city where uh, the Red Hat offices are. Mm-hmm. Um, and in between downtown DC and Tyson's Corner is usually about an hour, hour and a half worth of traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and But now we've actually got a metro line that goes all the way out, uh, which is wonderful and long overdue. Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to try it out next time I'm in town. Yeah, and it should go, and I guess our plans are underway for what, to, to go to Dulles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, and you took a, you went to school. You took an exam on Friday, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, just refreshing my RHC. And, and the first step on that journey is to get your Red Hat certified system administrator. So I, I took the test in one of those kiosks um, and uh, really enjoyed it. The, the whole experience of, uh, you know, you sign up and then you basically get sort of like uh, going to like the Marriott site to reserve a hotel room. Um, and you just say that, Oh, I want to show up on this day at this time. And then you show up and you go, and um, and it's just like a regular old Red Hat test where you know they they give you um, a system and it's all hands on, right? Where it's funny, it's like I'm sitting next to these other guys that are doing like these Microsoft tests, which are like multiple choice, and yeah, that would just drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, where here it's like they give you a system and say, you know, do these things, and it's it's really cool. I I really enjoyed it. So and I passed too. So I'm. I'm I'm happy. Oh, that's even better. I, I'm glad you clarified it because when you said you were, did it at a kiosk, I kind of imagined you standing awkwardly, painfully at an ATM for like two hours. <laughs> yeah, to get a thing in my back. Yeah. <laughs> no, like so. There's it. Uh, training facilities around the world. They have um, instead of like waiting for a class to come to you and the class gets canceled or you get bumped from it or something, um, you could sign up for to take it at a kiosk. So you, you go to the same sort of training facility and there, there's one that's like, I don't know, half hour, 40 minute drive from my house. So instead of me getting on a plane, I just you know drove up there and um, you go in this room and there's like, um, you know, you have this little desk and like there are like six computers in there and one then I sat down at the one and you, you do the exam and there's like cameras on you that it's watching you to make sure that you're not like bringing notes or cheating or having a cell phone or whatever. And then it's like if you have to like take a break or go to the bathroom or get a cup of coffee, you can request that and then it'll like lock the screen and then you come back, you press a button and it unlocks it and you get back to work. And it was really – I it was an awesome experience, especially that I didn't have to travel. I loved it. Yeah. No, that does sound great. That does sound great. Uh, and so nice to be able to schedule your own time rather than waiting for 30 people to coordinate schedules and do a, mm-hmm. like a full-blown class. That's great. Excellent. Yeah. And then um, the other thing that I learned too was, and, and this was more than just like, I, you know, I went, I, instead of like doing it on RHEL 6, which I knew pretty well, I wanted to do it on RHEL 7 to force me to learn. And uh, so it was, uh, I'm really cool doing a lab work of doing uh, SE, uh, SE Linux enabled NFS. Um, so that's something that we've been waiting for for a long time. So it's yeah, been like a, that's like a unicorn for us. Uh, yeah. I mean, we've been asking for that since I started at Red Hat like eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the problem is that whenever you mount a file system with NFS pre RHEL 7, um, the SE Linux extended attribute would be the same for the entire mount point. Mm-hmm. And now with RHEL 7, um, it looks just like a regular old file system that you mount where the extended attributes come through. So you could have some content marked as Apache content, some of it as Samba content or, or whatever. Um, and then one of the other cool things is that this also opens a door for being able to use things like SVIRT 
uh, with NFS uh, shares for your virtual machines, which is something that you couldn't do before um, with, say, like Rev. Um, you had to use uh, something like iSCSI or Fiber Channel um, for uh, to do the to set the SE Linux labels for SVIRT. Um, so now you can do it with uh, NFS. Oh, that's wonderful. So you can uh, so you be able to create a virtual machine, um, have its disk image protected from everyone else by SE Linux, mm-hmm. um, and have that running on, uh, still have that run on a centralized NFS server. Um, yep. So you can do the storage sharing and all the rest of it, but you don't have to compromise on the security. That's, yep. that's wonderful. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So it was, it was a good week for me. Good for us. Good for yeah. us. Who do, we, do you know who we have to thank in engineering for that? Uh, probably Rick Wheeler. Yeah, Rick Wheeler. Yep. Thanks, man. Yep. Uh, I would be surprised if Dan Walsh wasn't also involved. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure. Yep. All right. Uh, we got a we got a weird grab bag of stuff on the in the in the show today. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like genuinely weird. Yes. Uh, what 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 do we have, Dave? Yeah. So we got uh, was uh, more on is it Civet? Civet Civet Cat. Civet Civet Cat. Civet cat scat. So mm-hmm. more more about animal poop and coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, we get, we're going to talk about uh, the TI eighty four and how that's just a total racket. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about my mobile backend, which sounds really awkward, and then um, uh, Red Hat Cloud for government. Yeah, Red Hat Cloud for government. I'm excited yep. about that. Cool. Um, so uh, if folks want uh, to, uh, if folks want to learn more about this wonderful inclusion of SE Linux and NFS, um, or if they want to link maybe to, uh, to my talk that I gave in, in Quebec, where do they go, Dave? They want to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner show.org. Wonderful. Um, and on the cutting room floor this week, uh, we've got, uh, so a suit that is like a jumpsuit suit. Yes. It's awesome. It's, it's perfect for video conferences. So think of a, of a jumpsuit that, that like a auto mechanic or somebody would wear, but it's a suit. So it zips up and you're like good to go. Mm-hmm. Sold. Sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this uh, hilarious uh, satire of uh, Goodnight Moon, uh, which is mm-hmm. Goodnight Dune. Uh, yep. So all of the objects in the room are named after uh, are, are things in the Dune universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like Goodnight Gumjabar, Goodnight Fedakeen. Uh, it's yep. very funny. Um, so you, you read that to Soren? <laughs> mm-hmm. You better, you better believe it. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, oh, and the, the hamster wheel standing desk, yep. uh, which is exactly what you think it is, and it is actually much more beautifully wrought than you think it is. Yep. So I encourage people to click through on that on dgshow.org. Um, what do we got in follow-up, Dave? Yeah, so we got some uh, uh, feedback from uh, Matt Mycini uh, mm-hmm. about, um, so he's, he brought to our attention, there's an Indonesian coffee uh, animal that's called the civet cat um, mm-hmm. that... It claims for that to be um, uh, the world's most expensive coffee, and by using that, cat's poop. And I'm sure that it could be more expensive because if you think about the volume of an elephant to a cat, you know, you might, you know, throughput would be a problem. You need a lot more cats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need yeah. like a cat cluster, I guess. Yeah, but. you need scat bandwidth. Yeah. That's what you need. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and then uh, Eric, uh, our uh, friend of the show, Eric Morrissey, uh, heard us talking about. Um, we're just talking about uh, email and, and spam and the rest of it. And uh, he says he went back through his Yahoo account and uh, l- looked at like years of accumulated spam on this like long neglected Yahoo account. Uh, yes. And so he did a little, uh, he broke out his, his R 
interpreter and uh, did a little uh, did a little analysis of his uh, spam folder and I'll in, uh, include this hilarious pie graph which I will include uh, in the show notes. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so TI eighty four. So is Lauren using a TI eighty four? No, um, no. And that, that's another thing that I have a gripe about. So I'm going to go on a rant. Um, okay, here we go. Yeah, strap in. Mm-hmm. So there is a article, I guess it's in the Washington Post, that talked about the TI-84 Plus, about how an old outdated cal- calculator still holds a monopoly on classrooms. And so um, so for those not familiar with the TI-84 Plus, um, it came out in 2004, um, it has, it's like a $150 MSRP, $90 to $120 uh, street price. Um, the, they were thinking that the thing probably cost about 10, uh, $15 to $20 to make. Um, so it has huge profit margins. Um, but the reason why it's still around and still so popular is a couple of reasons. One is that it's quote unquote certified for standardized tests like the SAT. Um, unlike, like, say, bringing your cell phone in to use the calculator on there or a calculator app because there's a fear of people cheating. So if you have this calculator that could only serve as a calculator, um, that would be legal for you to bring in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part is that um, there's this whole big cabal or, I guess, outreach by the Texas Instruments folks as far as, like, having a teacher uh, ecosystem and and getting them to learn about the value of TI and all that and which sort of reinforces that lock in of of having students buy it and mm-hmm. so in Lauren's case the the calculator of choice for her school is the TI Inspire CX CAS which we picked up for about one hundred twenty five bucks and she said you know that we even checked with the teacher it's like you know it seems like in previous schools or whatever it's like you could have one kind of calculator, but can I, can we use this old calculator that we had? And, and she said, no, um, we have to have this. Everybody has to have the same calculator because it would just be chaos, right? It's sort of like everybody being able to bring their, you know, sign up for the army and then they get to bring their own rifle with them. Um, it's really <laughs> hard to, it's hard to teach, uh, somebody if everybody has a different calculator and, and calculators are, I would say counterintuitive to begin with. So having something that the teacher understands and everything. So no substitutes. So, so I'm struck actually by this, this like consistent, uh, price for the TI-84 because you would expect that, you know, a calculator would eventually become obsolete or supplanted by a newer, faster, cheaper item. Um, but you're saying it's, it's actually stayed relatively flat, the price for years and years and years, double surprising because you would think that there would be a thriving aftermarket for this stuff, right? Because I'm taking a calculus class for a semester and then hopefully I'll never see a TI-84 again. Yep. Um, I would throw it up on eBay and hopefully sell it for like the 90 to $120 street price. Right. Um, yep. so is it, is, is this actually, do you, do you feel like it's actually a hardship or is this just like funny money? Are we just like moving, are we just moving calculators around? Uh, you're right. It's, it's, they're going to probably hold their value if they don't get trashed, right. Mm-hmm. And squished mm-hmm. in a backpack or something. But, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, I think holding their value is a relative term. Uh, so sure. that, you know, it's, um, you know, like if you look at what the use prices are for these calculators, they are like only a couple bucks away from brand new. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, so if, I guess if you take care of them and all that, you could, you could probably get your money back, but it's still frustrating. You know what we should do, Dave, if this uh, open source thing doesn't work out, we should, uh, we should start a uh, rent a TI-84 service. Yep. 
just like you can uh, rent out textbooks. Yeah. Same thing, but for calculators, right? Well, yeah. Or even, you know, the other thought is why can't the schools provide it? Yeah, no, we, this is crazy. You're talking, that's, it'd be bedlam. Uh, it would be, uh, that actually, that's actually a pretty good idea. Yeah. And then, you know, cause you got 30 kids, you get 30 calculators and then the kid signs a paper. It's like, oh, if you lose it, then you got to replace it. Otherwise yeah. you hand it in and you know, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And I, I was thinking it's like when you have things like Arduino and, and all that stuff, you know, it's like you have open source hardware and, you know, why doesn't, I think the market is right to disrupt it as far as like, what if there's like an open source calculator that, you know, can do all those functions for you or that was sort of feature compatible. I don't know if they have like patents or whatever on how it works that prevents somebody else from doing like a, a, a knockoff of, from a functionality standpoint, but mm-hmm. um, it's it interesting with say like Arduino, like you could pick one of those up for like 25 bucks, brand new, made in Italy by the Arduino people. Um, but the hardware is actually open source. Uh, so um, there are a lot, you can go to eBay and buy an Arduino clone for like nine bucks. Uh, and, and it's in theory functions the exact same way. Mm-hmm. I suspect I, you're you're right about the patent. I think because I seem to remember t- uh, the TI eighty four having this completely inscrutable basic type language to quote unquote mm-hmm. program it in. Yeah. Um. And I and I that is probably kind of heavily laden with with intellectual property claims. That would yep. be my that'd be my guess. Yeah. Um. And probably why there aren't more knockoffs. Yeah. And it, I and I don't know. I would be interesting. I would be interested to get some listener feedback to like, do you actually use a calculator? in the real world or do you use the calculator on your desktop or you know what do you use for a calculator well and actually the punchline to this whole thing is i actually just three weeks ago sold my ti-84 on ebay oh uh, yeah what did you get 120 for it uh what did i get yeah, i got about 90 bucks for it 90 bucks that's for not it. bad at all it was about 10 years old so a little long in the tooth so you're going to use that 90 bucks to sign up for this new uh social media site right I am because uh, my whole sense of self worth comes from which social media groups I belong to. Yep. So, so ninety dollars or even nine thousand dollars is a is a modest price to pay for uh for a for the smug self satisfaction uh, that comes from joining Metropolitan. Is that what it's called? Yep. Yep. And so you found this. So tell tell us what tell us yeah. all about it. So it's it, you could think of it as like a cross between Facebook and a country club. So you spend. Nine thousand dollars. So that's that's what about a uh, hundred uh, uh, or no? It's it's um, get your calculator out. Yeah, I need a calculator for this. It's several <laughs> uh, CX uh, NAS whatever calculators, um, and so it's nine thousand to sign up uh, for the the membership fee, and then every year after that, it's only three thousand dollars a year, um, nice. and then you get to uh, interact with uh, people uh, that spent the same amount of money as you did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what I like about this is, uh, is the self-selection involved. Uh, yes. you're going to get a group full of people who, to whom it sounds perfectly reasonable to drop $9,000 on membership in a crossover Facebook slash country club. Um, yeah. It's like you fly. almost want to be a fly on a wall. Yeah. Uh, I was going to so say, yeah, to be a fly on that about? wall. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Bill Gates and Larry Gar- uh, Ellison exchanging, I don't know. I don't yeah. know, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Although, although I, I suspect that uh, Larry Ellison's uh, Larry Ellison's memberships are going to run closer to the nine hundred thousand dollar dues than the uh, nine thousand dollar dues. 
Yeah. I wonder, how do you pick a price point like that? Yeah. Well, and also, I'm sure that's a suggested retail price. And to get started, <laughs> they, you know, they probably reached out to certain people and either gave it to them for free or like certain influencers. Hmm. And then... Um, or thinkfluencers. Yes. 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 And, and just to get to get that going because it's you know it's like you know what metcast flaw right where uh you know the the value of a network is proportional to the square of the number of connected users on the system so mm -hmm. it's like so if you only have like bill gates and larry ellison and you know is that a, a valuable social network right uh, right but then you had warren buffett and you had uh, other people yeah well, I think what what makes this funny for me is it's like a, it's a complete misunderstanding of social media, right? Uh, like you say, you know, Metcalf's law. Like the larger the community there is, and Facebook say what you want about it, but it is democratizing in the sense that it is as easy for me to email my favorite author or send a message to my favorite author as it is to send a message to my mom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what's magical about it. Yeah. Uh, but now putting these art putting an artificial barrier in place, like a $9,000 dues for membership. Um, <laughs> there's a, uh, there was a, an American diplomat, uh, who served, I think in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, uh, they asked him about learning Arabic and he said, uh, it's like opening a door to an empty room. Uh, similarly, <laughs> I feel like paying $9,000 to join a club full of people who are willing to part with $9,000 to join a club is like opening a door to an empty room. Yeah. Um, and by creating scarcity in this way, like by getting a smaller number of people in there, you're just kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Like, um, why even have that be a social media kind of thing at all? Yeah. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, yeah. what you could do is you can get that membership and then, go on there and then sell TI-84 calculators at a, in an extreme markup and uh -huh. use use the money that you make to renew your membership for the next year. That's right. That's right. Actually, that, that's true. I, when I was talking about self-selection, I think uh, this is also creating a target-rich environment for marketers. Um, yep. Yeah. People willing to pay $9,000 for basically anything. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I guess there are no ads on this network, though, and they don't track you. It's, it's the least they could do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of that onion article about the app uh that notifies you when others in the vicinity uh, are nearby who also wasted three hundred three dollars on the same application yep yeah yep and then there's a premium version that well it's 4.99 oh and what does that do um it it tells you about the people that also spent 4.99 on it so, <laughs> so again self-selection yeah right mm -hmm. call that all so it's a self-licking ice cream cone that's what mm -hmm. we call that yeah pretty great speaking of self-licking ice cream cones uh we covered uh dhs and uh the kind of state of the national security apparatus in the last episode uh i got a little point of follow-up on that um so we had what two breaches of the white house gate uh this week yep uh, and uh so one was a guy dressed up like a pokemon uh and the other was a guy uh, so actually it's a very sad story. He's a three-time vet, obviously yeah. disturbed. He'd been arrested a number of times earlier and made it to the white house door with a, with a knife in his hand. Um, so you're the secret service. Uh, this is embarrassing. You obviously need to do something, um, if for no other reason than to show that you are doing something. Um, yep. so, so Dave, do you, uh, do you increase your, uh, do you increase your presence at the gate? Uh, do you make adjustments to the gate itself? Uh, do you, uh, 
put your people through training uh, to make sure that they can stop somebody between the gate and the White House door. Um, what, what, what do you suppose that they did? They bought drones. Uh, very nearly. Um, so they've now proposed that uh, they're going to put visitor blocks uh, in an even wider perimeter around the White House. Um, and so as you approach the White House, on the north end of the White House, there's a, there's a very beautiful park, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so now they're talking about moving the kind of perimeter of surveillance uh, into that park uh, and into the adjacent streets, uh, kind of well away from the White House, uh, on the premise that this will give them a better chance of stopping uh, stopping someone on their way, uh, on their way to do something terrible to the, uh, uh, to the president and the white house. Um, this just seems like the laziest thing I've ever heard. Um, I mean, the white house has like, it's bristling with cameras and mm-hmm. surveillance equipment and are like literally armed guards. Um, you have the entire, you know, 17 intelligence agencies. Um, I'm sure all of which are listening for threats to the white house. Um, and so, in response to these two relatively isolated incidents, um, they are now going to kind of profoundly alter uh, the landscape around the White House, um, yep. as well as people's rights and privacy uh, when they get close to the White House. Uh, this just seems like this really upsets me. Like, I, I just, it doesn't seem right. Um, and not only is it not right, uh, but it is, like I say, I think it's like, it seems lazy to me. Um, it seems yeah. like there should be a more sophisticated answer to this than just like drawing a bigger circle around the White House. Yeah. Well, is this more like what uh, was a Bruce Schneier calls a uh, security theater? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think that's it, right. It's to show that they're doing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You exactly. know, it's sort of like after 9 11 having um, the National Guard walking around with machine guns in the airport. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, anyway, profoundly disappointing. Um, Dave, cheer me up. Tell me, tell me a story about Lauren. Yeah, so she is uh, Code.org's uh, Student of the Week. All right. That's wonderful. Yep. So yeah. is it, tell, can you tell us a little bit about Code.org, that, that organization? Yeah, so speaking of uh, Bill Gates, I believe he was one of the guys that started it, and there's a, a bunch of other, I don't know, it's Mark Zuckerberg or others, but you know, seeing the kids not getting into STEM as much as the people would like, and to fill... You know, there's there's lots of job openings for uh, people in the technology and computer field and all that. But uh, it seems like the, a lot of the kids aren't selecting that as a career path for them. And so this is like an outreach effort to show that um, that, hey, you know, being uh, writing code is and working with computers is actually a cool thing. And um, they teach kids how to how to code on the site. There, there are ways to do that. Um, and then they also have, in this case, they have a student of the week to highlight, um, you know, uh, I guess role models for um, uh, kids to aspire to. And, and Lauren got selected. Excellent. Oh, that's what I, and very well deserved. Um, yeah. Because she is indeed a role model. Yep. Yep. Um, I get stopped on a regular basis, actually, uh, by folks who asking after Lauren. Um, she has a she has a certain kind of a celebrity. I don't know if she's aware of that. <laughs> oh, she's very humble about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, so let's see. Uh, oh, speaking of, of coding and development organizations, uh, I will be, this week actually, I will be a Code for America. Um, mm-hmm. They're having their summit in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see the Code for America folks, and I'm excited to be back in San Francisco after, uh, after being away for far too long. Um, and then uh, I guess the week after that, I'm going to be at uh, NASIO, uh, the, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of state CIO uh, organization. I'll be over there in Nashville at their mm-hmm. annual meeting. Um, 
And then, uh, Dave, are you going to be at the Red Hat Forum in uh, D.C. on the 23rd of October? Nope, I'll be eating donuts. Donuts, tell me more. Yeah, so that's at Lawrence School, they have uh, donuts with dad. So it's one of those uh, things to, you know, have your, um, you know, in, encourage parent uh, participation in the school and all that. So um, it's really awesome. I, I went last year and it's, you can imagine this atrium that they have and it's just filled with tables and tables of like hundreds of like these like gigantic donuts. And so it's like, I'm in. And so it's like, <laughs> I don't care what the, what they're selling, what they're doing. It's like, I'm in, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's just great. I'm imagining you like Scrooge McDuck diving into a pile of donuts and doing a backstroke. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, let's see. Oh, the uh, security team at Red Hat gave us a little present this week. Yes. Yeah. So the RHEL 511 risk report came out. So that's something that uh, Mark Cox will do every uh, every minor release that comes out of RHEL. And so basically he looks at the oval data that we publish a couple times a day as far as like, oh, well, here's when uh, a vulnerability was made known and when the... Um, when we had a fix available, and we publish that data uh, several times a day, you could you could be like Mark and pull down that data and run it through some uh, Perl scripts that we have written, and you could analyze it yourself, where you could see how quickly uh, we responded to um, uh, vulnerabilities. That's great. So now, uh, cut to the chase. How did we do? Yep. So some uh, is a really good uh, report card uh, this time. So from RHEL 5.0. So that's what, 2007 uh, to RHEL 5.11, uh, which is recent. 98% um, of the critical vulnerabilities that had an update um, was available the same day or the next calendar day the issue was made public. Wow. That's so tremendous. 98% you had a fix within like 24 hours. Man, take that patch Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I don't like waiting a month. Um, I like <laughs> to get it. And, and I'll, if I want to schedule it, I'll schedule it. But um, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great news. Uh, let's see. Oh, also news from the, uh, from the JBoss side of the house. Um, we acquired a new company, yep. uh, which apparently is a catering organization. Is that right? Yeah, it feeds one guy. It feeds one guy, and his name is Henry. Yep. So Feed Henry is the name of the outfit. Yep. Um, and these guys have a, it's, uh, <laughs> as Dave mentioned, it's a mobile backend as a service. Uh, yes. So... I'm going to try and describe this, Dave, and you tell me if I'm if I'm hitting it on the nose because this is not my area of expertise. Um, this is so I'm building an app on my from a for a mobile phone, yeah. and that app doesn't just exist on its own. In fact, it's useless without a bunch of servers in the back, right? Yeah. So yeah. giving me things like push notifications. Um, somebody's got to keep track of my data and my settings. Somebody's got to keep track of. Uh, uh, integrations with uh, like other stuff in my company. Um, and so there's all kinds of work on the back end that needs to happen in order to make a mobile app useful. And what these guys at Feed Henry have done is built a bunch of these integrations and these back end services and then fixed it so that a company can host them on either on their own infrastructure or up on Amazon or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, did, did I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you got it. And you can imagine stuff like authentication is one good example of you yeah, having right. to write that same code over and over again. And from a security standpoint, you know, that's like high risk. Um, yep. We heard about all these apps that get hacked or whatever, or have really poor authentication. So if there are ways that it's been done right, um, you know, might as well take advantage of that. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like the fact that it, it can actually be hosted on many different infrastructures, which means that like our DoD customers, as an example, are not necessarily going to want to hand over the back end of their mobile applications to Amazon, right? Yes. Um, they may prefer to actually host that themselves in a Dissa deck or something like that. And Feed Henry, from what I understand, would make something like that possible. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess one other thing, too, is, um, you know, people often... This and I don't hear about it as much as I, I used to, but people would be like, "Oh, we need to get Red Hat needs to get in the mobile market, and you know, we need to be making our own I don't know telephones or doing our own mobile OS and all that." And I, I think that um, you know, I think Android and iOS and all that, they, you know, I think they kind of have that covered. But I still think there are ways for that market to be that there are ways to play in that market and this is an example of one of them where where we can play in with and whether it's mobile backend as a service or xpas um there's you know it's a way for us to be in the the server end and the enterprise end and the app development end but not necessarily the phone operating system end yeah yeah exactly right yeah i think that's true um Let's see. And did you see actually today, as we record on uh, on Monday, uh, we also announced the Red Hat Cloud for Government. Yeah, you had a hand to play in that, right? I did. I did. Um, I helped put this together. So, and this was really the birth of this was uh, me being infuriated at uh, a bunch of our competitors announcing uh, basically cloud in a box products. Yes. Um, so like. I don't need to name them. You know who they are. Uh, yeah. But people saying like, oh, you want a cloud? Here, sign up $2 million for a refrigerator. And now you have a cloud. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, and knowing what we know, I mean, having done this for literally years for our customers, putting, helping them put clouds together, helping them use public cloud services, uh, putting a cloud in place in an agency or in a particular program is actually complicated. Um, and it is much harder than just dropping, you know, a $2 million uh, piece of equipment in a data center. Yep. Um, and it, and when they are successful, these cloud deployments are consultative processes. They require changes to how the organization works. They require changes to how your internal kind of it procedures work. There's, uh, there's all kinds of like compliance and security stuff to worry about. And so what, what I found was that, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, Dave, is that when talking about what Red Hat can do, we talk about like all the little things that we can do, um, but it's very difficult often for us to describe kind of the umbrella, like the overarching what we're capable of. Um, and so that's, an, that's what Red Hat Cloud for Government is meant to do is give people a, a window or kind of a portal into all of the things that we can provide um, as far as uh, government clouds go. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a combination of the Red Hat cloud infrastructure product, mm -hmm. uh, OpenShift, uh, and a consulting engagement um, mm -hmm. that lets all these folks who have stood up clouds at other agencies, we bring them into your agency uh, and help you think through these things and help you answer questions you may not even realize you need to ask. Uh, so I'm excited about it. I think it's pretty great. Um, the landing page for it is beautiful. We'll include a mm -hmm. link to that in the show notes. Uh, but uh, yeah, Red Hat Cloud for Government, it's on. Nice, nice, and it, they don't have to get everything directly from Red Hat, right? They, they, yeah, we have no. plenty of great partners that can do Red Hat-based solutions. Exactly. Uh, we've got obviously we work with all the certified cloud providers. You got you've got your uh, you got your Amazons of the world, of course. Uh, but then you have some of our favorites like Autonomic. Yeah, yeah. So what are they up to now? So Autonomic. Uh, so Dave, have you ever heard of OpenShift? Tell me more. 
Mm -hmm. So uh, OpenShift is a platform as a service, Dave. It's open source mm -hmm. and it's available from uh, from Red Hat. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know I love this product and I know that you yes. love this product. Oh, yeah. um, Autonomic also loves this product and they found a niche, uh, which is uh, you can use OpenShift online, which is public uh, on Amazon EC2. Uh, you can buy OpenShift yourself and run it in your data center, but they're... Some people don't want to host it themselves, but do need you know a kind of certified, accredited, uh, kind of government-friendly place to put it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so Autonomic uh, now has this ArcWorks solution, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically they've taken OpenShift and stuck it in a government-friendly environment. Yep. Uh, so, which is wonderful. Uh, and so, especially for folks who are using uh, the old DISA Stacks environment, uh, yep. which is now fixed into Sunset, uh, you should definitely go check out Autonomic and the uh, the ArcWorks, uh, ArcWorks product from them. Uh, and this, this is a great example, right? So, uh, if you're an agency and you want a platform as a service and you're interested in this ArcWorks solution, yes, you can go to Autonomic and go set it up, but how is that going to work with all the VMware that you've already got? How is that going to work with your existing development processes? How is that going to work with the Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization that you're running? Um, that's the kind of thing that Red Hat Cloud for Government can help you solve. Uh, it's yeah. kind of tying all this stuff together and making it one infrastructure instead of a bunch of cloud silos. Yeah, yeah. But that that's not the only partner we're featuring this week. No, we enjoy many partners, uh, and uh, another partner that we like. In fact, we've had this this particular partner on the show, haven't we? Several times. Several times, yes. Nermal. Uh, yep. So Nermal over Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, so he's been doing a lot of work with CloudForms lately. Yep. Uh, and the Manage IQ community, who's the upstream for CloudForms, they're hosting a design summit um, in New Jersey, of all places. I'll forgive yes. them. That, uh, It'll be a very focused meeting. No distractions. <laughs> That's right. Um, so yeah, uh, October 7th and October 8th, uh, Booz Allen, Nermal, uh, his crew, uh, and the Red Hat CloudForms crew are all going to get together and, uh, and work on the upstream. Uh, nice. Which is super cool. So we'll include a link to the uh, the event uh, the Eventbrite invite in uh, in the show notes. Nice. Yeah. Cool. So last week we talked about having you know we were talking about lonely jobs and you know being the elephant or the the bean picker with the elephant. Um, I, I got a an actually inter, uh, a probably uh, exciting job title that I, okay. I thought was pretty good. I'm ready. Yeah, Chaos Commander. Awesome. That's awesome. What an awesome name! Yeah, can I be uh, can I be Chaos Commander? Yeah, that, I think that would be pretty cool because it well. So Netflix has uh, Chaos Commander, and he's he's looking to hire Chaos engineers um, to assault uh, his network and break it and verify that uh, that Netflix uh, provides a very resilient service. Like, can they not just hire like wild animals to go run amok through their data center? Is that <laughs> Yeah, like wouldn't that well, be wouldn't that not be cheaper? They need, I mean, less training certainly. Yeah, well, they do have a thing called Chaos Monkey, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and actually, I think they do have a Chaos Gorilla, um, which is Chaos Monkey is designed to like unplug services. Chaos Gorilla like takes out whole data centers. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm saying literally a gorilla they should yep. let loose in the data center. I think no better way to train your developers for fault tolerant code than. Make an example out of some of them. Yeah. That's right. Than being than the threat of being <laughs> torn apart by a, by an actual real life gorilla. Yeah, yeah. You'll check your pointers after that. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So why why would Netflix want to inflict chaos on themselves? 
Uh, oh, the, the reason is simple, um, mm -hmm. is that if your code is constantly being subjected to uh, to chaos, right? Yes. Uh, to yes. being disconnected, to being unplugged, um, you are going to write you are you are going to write more fault tolerant code. Um, the idea is that the developer should trust nothing and check everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, every mm -hmm. error matters. Um, every ar in the architecture, every failure matters, right? Uh, so you know, Dave, you and I have seen many many customers who have had like n plus one redundancy on everything except for like whatever a network switch, yep. right? And then of course it's the network switch that goes out. Yep. Uh, and so that means that all that investment and all that redundancy and all that fault tolerance is rendered totally meaningless um, yep. by the fact that you have whatever, you know, one internet connection. Um, and so by creating a, a hostile environment for the code to run in, uh, your developers are going to very quickly learn to write code that is much more tolerant of faults. Yes. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, and I'm sure they would, where things break, I mean, they'll be embarrassed that it's like, oh, well, it broke again because of you you know, Dave, and, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, and it piles up after a while. But, um, but I guess this is also, you know, tying this into the cloud, this is like a, a new age way of doing development too, where in the past, you know, you always had like, um, you know, the classic, you know, it's like, you may have like a big Unix server running an Oracle database, and then you may have like a, an Apache web server serving that up that's running on a big, you know, Solaris box and all that. And and maybe if you're really successful and you get really big, you may have like two of them, and you start doing clustering and stuff like that. Where, um, where now it's like with a lot of these cloud applications, people are, are developing them for a massive scale to begin with, and also resiliency to. So it's like if your Oracle database went down, you would be pretty much hosed. But they want to be able to like probably shoot any Netflix node in the head and and have the the organism keep on functioning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And and so I describe this as like building for perfection versus building for failure. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, you and I have, you know, building for perfection is something that is required sometimes, but is very, very complicated, very hard to get right and extremely expensive yes. uh, because of all the redundancy you got to build in and all the checks. I mean, you look at what NASA does for spaceflight and the saw and how they write that software um, that is building for perfection and it is excruciating work. Yes. Um, really unpleasant. I mean, they get NASA's at the <laughs> they're at the point where when the JPL is writing software for like a rocket or a shuttle mission, they know exactly based on all the data they've accumulated, they know exactly how many bugs should be in the code. And mm. so when the red team goes in to go review the code, if they don't find that number of bugs, they don't ship the code. They send it back. Mm. They know exactly how many faults are supposed to be in there. Um, that's no way to live. Nobody wants to live like that. Um, and when you move into this like web scale world uh, where you have like tens or hundreds of thousands of machines, um, you cannot build for perfection because, you know, you're losing 5,000 hard drives a day. Uh, and so you just have, you come to expect that and it just has to be kind of like part of the culture and you have to build that fault tolerance into the architecture, just kind of bake it in. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes about responding to threats uh, rather than preventing them from happening in the first place. Uh, very much, actually, I'm now drawing this. Now, as I'm rambling here, I'm now connecting this to uh, how we now treat cybersecurity, right? Um, you know, the in, cyber, in the cybersecurity world, we talk about building, you know, 
building bigger walls or deeper moats um, and, you know, many concentric rings of protection. Uh, mm -hmm. But the conventional wisdom now is that that stuff's moderately useful, but it's also kind of expensive because you're building for perfection. Um, yes. We should instead maybe be investing time in our speed to remediation, right? Um, our ability to respond to a threat as it arrives is just as important. Um, and so that that's uh, investing in the resiliency of a system um, is especially when we're working at the web scale is becoming, you know, in increasingly popular, uh, and for good reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, what does a chaos commander's uniform look like? Uh, I just, I can, the only image I have in my head is Cobra commander. Yeah. That would right? be a like, good one. Like yeah. a little helmet and the mirror face on it. That's yeah. Right. yeah. It's Cobra commander. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Or maybe, maybe Destro with like the silver head. Yeah. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Nice. Um, let's see. Oh, so Dave, I'm, I, I did a bunch of housekeeping on my laptop, as I mentioned earlier yeah. in the show. Uh, and so uh, for folks who want to want to catch up with what I did, uh, my dot files are all on GitHub. I took all my configuration files and stuck them up on GitHub, mm -hmm. um, which was a wonderful experience. Um, first of all, because it made me go through and document all the little configuration fiddly things that I do um, mm -hmm. when I get a new machine. Uh, so now all that's up on Git. So now I can just do a Git clone and have all those files available to me when I get a new machine. So that, that makes me feel good. Um, I also like the idea of like sharing these configuration files because, you know, uh, writing a paper or doing a blog post or something like that and sharing that out, writing code and sharing that out. Uh, that's all that's all great but like the software that i use most every day is are these configuration files right they're what mm -hmm. tell my text editor how to look they're what how to you know this is really like the lifeblood of my workflow um maybe some of the most important software i use and so it's nice to be able to put it up on github um and share it with other people so i can just you know somebody wants to know why my text editor looks the way it does i can just point them at it mm. um and they can do it themselves yep Anyway, nice. so that made me, that, was, that sense of smug self-satisfaction doesn't cost $9,000. All you need to do is a git push. Yep, yep. Um, no, no calculator necessary. No calculator necessary. So it, anyway, I did a bunch of stuff like, uh, you know, I've been using screen like a 60-year-old uh, man for, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for far too long. I know the kids have been using Tmux uh, for at least five years, maybe more. Um, and so I finally switched from screen to Tmux. Um, saw some immediate performance improvements, mm. um, mostly because Tmux is Googleable. Um, I defy you to go Google for screen documentation. It's impossible. Yeah. You'll get um, a man page, maybe. <laughs> at best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but I, I did have a question for you, Dave. Yep. In doing all this house cleaning, I realized that I have like a dozen Etherpads open at any given time, um, you know, and maybe a dozen other like Google Docs open. And I'm trying to figure out like what what's a good way of keeping keeping this stuff together. Do I just like bookmark them? Cause I'm not really a bookmark guy. Yep. Uh, what I ended up doing is creating like an etherpad and in the etherpad is a list of all the etherpads that, mm. that I want to have at the ready, which seems like an okay solution, but kind of clunky. I don't know. How, how do you manage it? Yeah. And so for, for me, for etherpads, they are typically, I try to treat them as ephemeral mm -hmm. and so that they have a, a short lifespan and they eventually die after a while. And so typically I associate that with an event and I have the, I try to put the etherpad link in a calendar invite. So it's like, oh yeah, remember when we had that meeting on whatever, I could go through my calendar and pull that out. It's probably not the best solution, but um, that kind of works for me. And I, and like we were talking before on the show, the, I've been using um, Google Docs for 
note taking lately, and that, that seems to be working okay. I don't know if that's the best solution. I've, I've been trying to go more and more paperless, so um, we'll see how that goes. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to you know in the last episode, yeah, the last episode I talked about the, that OTF summit. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and some of the good work that folks are doing over there, and I wanted to direct folks over to a Chrome extension, uh, which I enjoy very much. It's called Cupcake. Yeah, it's adorable. Um, you install this Chrome extension, and it turns your browser into a Tor bridge. Yes. So what's uh, a Tor bridge? So this is the uh, this is one of the components of the of the larger kind of Tor infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in other words, basically you can become another node in a Tor network. Mm-hmm. Um, you yourself are not cloaked, um, but you become you are contributing resources uh, to the to the anonymity that Tor provides. Um, and installing a Chrome extension really couldn't be easier. Um, when you install it, you get a pink uh, cupcake up on your uh, Chrome bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as uh, somebody's uh, sending data through your connection, uh, you get a little smiley face on the cupcake. It's adorable. Oh. Um, anyway, it's a nice, like, low cost, like, not a lot of fiddling. Um, in fact, there's no configuration options to it at all. You just install it and let it go. Uh, and it's a really easy way of, uh, of helping build out uh, the, the, the Tor infrastructure. Um, so uh, check it out. Yeah. So could that really crush your bandwidth if somebody's really hitting it hard? I have been running it for a few days now, and I have not noticed. Okay. Um, I don't know what kind of bandwidth controls or throttling the the Tor network performs. Yep. Um, so I don't know. You know, maybe one day I'll, I'll regret it. But uh, uh, but for now, it seems like it's uh, working like a champ. Yeah, and then I guess it's it's based upon um, some sort of technology that you you don't necessarily have to have a browser extension for it. Like you can go to a website and buy. And maybe I read this wrong this mm-hmm. morning, but. Like, let's say I go to a website, and the website has some JavaScript that gets pulled down, mm-hmm. and just by me looking at that website, I become a, a Tor uh, uh, bridge. Yeah, that's right. So they're called flash proxies. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful idea, right? So I could install a flash proxy on whatever, my blog, as an example. Mm-hmm. And for as long as somebody has my blog open, uh, they can become a channel for this kind of thing. Um, obviously, there's some ethical stuff there, like you're drafting people into performing this service, which maybe they aren't interested in helping out on. Um, yes. But like technically, it's kind of an interesting solution. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's scary, too. Yeah, it is great. Right? Um, and so think yeah. about it like uh let's say you have like sketchy websites that, you know, uh, you know, you you name what people want to be looking for, right? And how do you monetize that? Well, m- you know, maybe instead of having it uh you know, people paying money to use a site, they could actually use it becomes like a tour part of a botnet or something. And mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know if you it it sounds like you don't necessarily have to opt in. Uh, it's just sort of it happens whether you want to or not, and whether you know it or not. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, I mean, JavaScript has become extraordinary, and JavaScript and HTML5 are like extraordinarily powerful. I mean, they are full blown, you know, programming environments. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, you can, in, you know, in the last episode we talked about the add this folks. Um, yes. And uh, you know them using basically using the same principles. Um, to collect data on you, um, and this is basically using using the principles to um, help other people get anonymity online and maybe borrow your bandwidth. Um, and so, yeah, I think people don't realize exactly how much 
is able to go on under the covers. Um, yes. You know, they're relatively content with the fact that they can use keystrokes in Gmail um, and, uh, and uh, you know, and answer Gmail offline. Um, but the same tools that make that possible also make stuff like Cupcake and stuff like the Add This thing uh, possible. Yeah. yeah. So, so what if I wanted to blackmail somebody and I could put, if they went to, like, and and not necessarily Tor. It, it, you know, I don't think you have to use Tor for this. But um, let's say uh, somebody goes to my website, and then um, by going to my website, it opens up a network connection and sends traffic to say like WhiteHouse.gov with threatening emails or something like that. Mm-hmm. Would that be possible? Uh, you know, so it would. So basically, it it gives me plausible deniability, but it it could also point the finger at somebody that. You know, it's like, oh, well, you went to this bad website or you sent this content to somebody else that was threatening. Um, is that possible? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, it is possible. I think that there are brow- there are protections in place. Um, yeah. I know that, for example, um, the JavaScript that runs on a web page can only communicate with the server that it came from. Okay. Something like that. And you have to actually, like, deliberately turn that off. Um uh, anyway, the, I, I wish I was more clear about this, uh, but there are protections that you can have in place um, in your browser that would prevent this from happening. And I think the defaults on things like Firefox and things like Chrome are, uh, are pretty commonsensical, um, yes. assuming that you trust the server from which you pulled the uh, from which you pull the web page but you bring up an important point dave is that um people think about browsing the web as like a read-only experience um and in fact what you're doing nowadays when you're downloading a web page you are downloading an application Um, yes that application may be dumb it may be the you know the newsweek homepage or something um but uh if you are just clicking on links and not really thinking about where they're coming from um, you know, you can do a lot of damage to somebody um, and repurpose their machine to do all kinds of stuff uh, if the if the server is hostile. Yep. Yep. Good. I'm ready. Uh, that's a nice bedtime story. I'm not. Uh, yeah. Read that to Soren. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so let's see. All right. So I'm flying to San Francisco this week. Uh, uh, Dave, are you are you going anywhere this week? Yeah, I'm going up to Westford uh, for a couple of days. And Are you you're taking US Air to do that? Yep, yep. And I'm going through Reagan uh, this time like I did last week. And I, I had an interesting experience. Um, you know, so and I, I, we probably talked about this before of, of how you phrase things to uh, uh, look at things from a different, just by how you say it, people could look at things in a different way. Uh, Context and so, um, I don't know if you ever uh, at, at the Reagan National Airport, the Gate Thirty Five A, where mm-hmm. it's like you go downstairs and you get on a bus and right. yeah, it's horrible. It is. Um, so we going from Akron landed in Reagan, um, and we're waiting to get off um, and then waiting for the bus to show up. And and so the flight attendant she said, "Well, hey, um, just want to let you know." Um, there's not going to be uh, a jet bridge here. Uh, it's going to be uh, steps to get down to the bus. So everybody's going to be leaving presidential style. <laughs> and I'm like, that's pretty cool. I, and I'm and I'm like thinking about. I'm on the plane. I'm way in the back, and I'm just thinking about it. It's like I'm, you know, it's like I'm excited about this. I'm getting off uh, the plane presidential style, you know. And and then it would be like like picture of me with you know doing the whole Richard Nixon thing, you know, walking, and you know and, and uh, yeah, it was great. So great. I, I highly recommend it if you're going to get off a plane, just do it do it presidential style. 
Uh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. That, that's funny that I also got the Richard Nixon image immediately. I was like, you, you have to leave presidential style, and by that she means leave in disgrace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for flying U.S. Airways. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so, Dave, if folks, uh, if folks want to learn more about uh, this Cupcake extension, um, if they want to learn more about the Chaos Commander, if they want to learn more about uh, Catscat, uh, where, where can they go? Yeah, they need to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Wonderful. Uh, have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks.